All right, we are recording. Welcome to those of you who are listening in. We're just setting up, so stay tuned for content. seems weird holding a mic and <laughs> talking in an intimate circle, but uh, that will help those who are tuning in later to hear it. So bear with the awkwardness, but I'm glad you all are here and we get to have kind of a conversation about something we don't typically talk about. Um, so just going to dive right in, talk a little bit more about uh, me, what I do. Um, I'm a physical therapist, like I said earlier, and if Anyone who doesn't know what that is, no shame. Okay, great. Uh, so you're all familiar with a physical therapist. Perfect. I like to think of us as the musculoskeletal experts. We learn in our schooling a lot about joints and bones and muscles and how to help rehab things. Um, so there are a few select of us that decide to specialize in the muscles and the joints of the pelvis. Um, so typically what sessions look like is just meeting with men and women and kind of figuring out what's going on with that area of our bodies. Um, as you can figure out, the pelvis is the literal center of our body. So there's things above and things below that can feed into how it's working. Um, so a little bit more, just kind of dive in with a little of anatomy. Uh, everyone grab their pelvis. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So you can feel that rim on the upper part. That's the top of your pelvis. Dive a little bit down. You kind of feel an empty space. That's where a lot of muscles attach. If you slide in towards your groin, you might be able to feel more of your hip joint. If you slide down towards the front, kind of right in the middle there, some of you it might be tender. <laughs> oh, you have to be. So you're on your bladder. You found your bladder. Way to go. <laughs> Just below that, you can find the front of your pelvis, and there's a little joint in between there and that is sometimes tender to touch. Um, and then inside of that there rests this bowl of muscles it's called our pelvic floor muscle group um, most people are familiar with the word kegel right we've heard kegel i tend to shy away from that because um, it was named after the last name of a man so fun fact <laughs> so i like to call it pelvic floor muscle contraction so we're going to do an exercise together just to figure out what that means because um, that is important stuff to know so as you sit here, think about if you were peeing and you had to stop the flow of urine, what would you do? You squeeze, yeah. So kind of feel what that feels like. It should feel like your shoulders go up into your, or like your muscles, like your shoulders, kind of elevating up inside your body. Cool, let's try the opposite. So think about, okay, everyone put one hand on your upper chest and one hand on your lower belly. What I want you to do is take a nice big deep breath, but don't let that chest hand move. So you're going to fill your lower belly, which is hard for a lot of you. <laughs> Very common. This is, this is called a diaphragmatic breath. So you're using your upper diaphragm. And what you should feel as you get going, so kind of in through your nose for a few seconds, out slowly through your mouth for a few seconds, you should feel your pelvic floor 
<sighs> rest. Um, for some of you, that might be hard, and that is okay. Um, but typically what you will feel is like your hip bones kind of wag out, your tailbone might wag behind you, and that's your pelvic floor dropping. So kind of a fun little activity to get us started. This is what I do all day. I teach people a range of motion of their pelvic floor. Um, the pelvic floor, come on in if you want, no pressure, but you are welcome to come in. <sighs> yep, we're going to pause and open our circle a little bit. That sounds great. We took a little pause to expand our circle for those of you who are tuning in later. Cool. Welcome back to the circle. That is okay. Uh, so just like any other muscle, the pelvic floor muscle needs to have range of motion. So it needs to be able to contract. I like to use my biceps a lot. So when I bend my elbow, that muscle, my biceps muscle is contracting. It also needs to be able to rest. So it needs to fully extend, just like me extending my elbow. Um, so that exercise that we just did, um, we tightened the muscle and then we helped it relax. So that's basically what I do. So there's a nutshell. I teach people range of motion of their pelvic floor. So what happens when things aren't going, uh, well, what does the pelvic floor do? Let me answer that question first. So it does a lot of things. It's, it wears a lot of hats. Uh, it needs to stabilize your pelvis, stabilize your back, um, stabilize your pelvic uh, organs. So think like uterus, bladder, rectum, all of those things need support from those muscles. Uh, also needs to help pee and poo come out and help keep it in when it needs to stay in. Um, and let's see, I think that's, oh, it acts as a sump pump. So it pushes fluid around the body. Uh, you got a few big arteries and veins in that area. So it helps push fluid around. So basically what I do is I treat when any of those systems start to go wrong. So lots of common things that I treat, uh, incontinence. So in, which is the unintended loss of urine or stool, uh, urinary problems, urgency, frequency, uh, prolapse, which is just a fancy word of a support issue of any of those organs that I mentioned before, uh, bowel or bladder dysfunction, constipation, low back pain, pelvic pain, and pain with sex. So lots of things um, that can go wrong in that area. And so part of my job is just bringing healing. Uh, if any of those, as I say them, you're like, well, I got, let me just say also, we all have things to work on. Nobody's pelvic floor is perfect. So we all have something to work on. Um, but if any of those things resonate with you, pelvic PT could be a really cool place to bring some healing because there's no way in a setting like this that we're going to be able to talk about, address, or even treat things that are going wrong there. So just let me say that up front. There is hope for healing. Um, so seek care. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. A shameless plug for, for what we do. It's pretty cool. Uh, so I wrote down just a couple goals of what we're of this the rest of the talk. Um, the first goal that I wrote down, just starting a conversation. Um, we oft there's a lot of just shame and darkness and hiddenness and loneliness uh, when things in this area start to go wrong. Um, so part of my goal is just, can we start a conversation that's anatomical focused, that's um, truth focused, that's biblically focused um, in order to just bring some light because uh, light breaks up the darkness, right? So that's kind of the first goal. 
Uh, second goal is to offer hope for healing uh, and just say that there are treatments and options if uh, any of these things that we talk about re resonate with you. Um, there are lots of ways to get through that. A couple disclaimers. Uh, if you haven't figured out, we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> we're going to talk about menstruation. Talk about pee and poop. Uh, so don't be surprised <laughs> uh, if in yourself you're kind of like, like Jen was mentioning earlier, feeling like flushed or like a little embarrassed. That's okay. Um, but I will also say maybe that's something to work on and process uh, with yourself and with other people. Like why... Why are those feelings of shame around just an open conversation? I think there is potential for a lot of healing and bringing even to that. Can we talk about these things without feeling shame or dirty? So that's number one disclaimer. Number two, I'm not a sex therapist. <laughs> I talk a lot about sex uh, and we tend to focus on the physical, uh, but I tend to focus on the physical aspect, like how our body's working, are things uh, lubricated as they should be, um, is how's the tissue health, um, the kind of the functions of and the bodily functions of sex. Um, I usually, I am not um, surprised when there's trauma um, and I the care that I provide is often trauma informed but there are a lot of times where trauma impacts that area pretty significantly so I just like to say that up front not a sex therapist there are sex therapists that exist so that can be really cool um, also any advice today that we talk about is not medical advice. <laughs> There's my official <laughs> disclaimer. Uh, and it can't be in a group setting. There's no way that uh, the things that we talk about can be individualized care, nor should it should it be. Um, so a lot of this information is fairly generic, uh, and there'll be lots of time for questions, and I'll do my best to answer that in a, in a healthy and helpful way. Um, but if you're searching for individualized care, this isn't it. Um, come see me later. Uh, <laughs> cool. Enough of the disclaimers. Uh, why is this conversation important? Uh, I wrote down, I, I strongly believe that Satan uses bad theology, current cultural norms, and sexual sin, either of our own sexual sin or others or close others around us or close to us to bring shame, guilt, hurt, hiddenness, and darkness. Um, so bringing any of those things out to the light can be really helpful. Uh, and how I want to spend the rest of our time this afternoon is just, can we start talking about myths? Can we just bust a few myths together? So I kind of, um, I wrote down six myths that we'll talk about. Uh, and I broke them down into um, stages of life. Because in this setting, there's probably some of us that are single, some of us that might be divorced or separated, others married, um, others dating, others not dating. So I wanted to be sure to touch on things that are important for sexual and bodily health at any of those phases. So the, there's first, the first two are for everyone. Second one's for single and dating. There's two for married and then one for older married. Let's dive in. So the first myth for everyone, bodies and sex are gross. <laughs> uh, we, we have thought that, haven't we? Uh, so what's the truth then? Uh, God created our bodies, and on the sixth day, he called them very good. That's in Genesis 1. Uh, that is true. Our bodies are very good. Another truth to bust that myth, Jesus came as a body and saved us with his body. Important. Um, uh, Philippians 2 says, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was a human. So if bodies were bad, Jesus wouldn't have one. right? So Jesus had a, had a body, and it's not bad. Uh, so what are the consequences if we believe that our bodies are bad? Uh, one of the first consequences, uh, we don't honor the wonderful design that is our bodies. Uh, going back to Psalm 139, we are fearfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, we're knit together in our mother's womb. And I love that knit. You know, it, 
knitting takes intentionality. It takes skill. It's not just throwing a ball of yarn and being like, yep, there's a sweater. <laughs> you know, you have to take time to knit it together. Our bodies are so complicated and so complex uh, and yet so simple, you know. And so uh, there's so many mysteries that we don't know um, and God, but God does and he made them. So we should honor our bodies by being able to talk about them. Uh, so in the context of women's bodies, uh, if we talk about them in a shameful way, we're not honoring God's design. So if we talk about things like body size or breasts or menstruation or sex in a shameful way, uh, that has implications that are often negative. Uh, a lot of women that I have worked with um, who come to me with pain and sex in particular often carry with them baggage around uh, thoughts or beliefs or how they were brought up, um, like how their parents talked to them about sex, how their parents talked to them about menstruation. Um, so lots of, lots of impacts there if those conversations don't take place at an age-appropriate time in an age-appropriate way. Uh, in the context of sex, you know, if we believe, you know, sex is gross, <laughs> uh, often we fear our bodies and are not comfortable with our bodies. Uh, and that can get pretty scary in sex if we're not comfortable in our bodies because sex is messy. <laughs> it's really messy. Uh, and we're at our most vulnerable. Um, so if there are any thoughts uh, in our heads that are thinking that this act is is gross or dirty, um, that can have negative implications as well. So we know the truth. We know the consequences if we believe the lie. So what's the call around this first myth of bodies and sex are, are gross, that myth? Um, the first call I wrote down, just start using proper names of body parts. I think that can be really healthy of saying things like vagina and penis, um, vulva, you know, being able to say those words without that, that hot <laughs> or like whispering vagina, right? Like, <laughs> let's just, it's, it's anatomy. It's an anatomical term. So kind of breaking some of the stigma can be a really good first step. Um, and also, like I said earlier, can we start, training our young people, our kids, if we have kids, uh, both male and female, and how to, you know, just age-appropriate conversations around what happens to our bodies. Uh, I heard a really interesting story that went viral. Uh, it was on Reddit. It was this woman posted a, a Facebook post that her daughter, it was about her daughter. She was on a bus going to school, and she had, she started her period, didn't know it, uh, went to stand up on the bus, and there was a 13-year-old boy sitting behind her, and he just gently tapped her on the shoulder and said, hey, you want to borrow my sweatshirt? I think, you know, you may have started your period. Like, very kind, very, like, pulled her aside. Um, and at first she was like, no. And then uh, he insisted, and he goes, it's okay, I have sisters. And I love that story. And like, yay to that mom, whoever, like, she taught that kid well. Because uh, he's not even a, a girl, never has to deal with that. But yet, he knew that that was, he's like, I have sisters, you know. And so he knew the devastation or embarrassment that that could have caused. And he acted in a really appropriate way. So there's really cool things that can happen if we just start talking about this and teaching um, the youth around us how to engage um, with this topic well. I brought with me a bunch of resources. There's a couple books here about that. Um, so if you are in a place where you have kids, there's a couple good books, both for guys and girls, that are that can be helpful of just reading through it together. Always good to read through it first before you, you grab your kid, but uh, it can be a really good resource of how can we just have a conversation and teach those around us how to have a conversation. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing really important, you know, what is, how do we start to bust this myth? Um, I think it's really important to pursue emotional and physical wellness and to build good self-esteem. Uh, so knowing who you are, knowing your identity as a daughter of the king, um, all of those can be really helpful at starting to, 
to wrestle with some tendencies of thinking that our bodies are gross or sex is gross. Uh, our bodies are also important, so caring for them is important. Eating well is important. Exercise is important. Um, nourishing your body is important. Uh, establishing good medical care, also really important. Um, and surrounding yourself with people who speak truth and break shame. So there's the first myth. Busted, right? Don't know, it's a lifelong journey, but helpful to kind of engage in that myth. Okay, myth number two, also for everyone. Leaking pee or poo is normal, especially with playing sports, exercise, after having kids, or as I get older. Not normal, not normal. Very common, very common, but not normal. Um, so yeah, leaking urine or stool is never a normal action of the body. Uh, and there are many women who suffer. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that um, we have some questions in our paperwork that are like, how have you changed your life based on what you're dealing with? And so for those women who have come and seen me and they're dealing with some incontinence of some sort, often they're like, well, I started to not go outside as much. I started to restrict my activity. I can't travel more than an hour away from my home. Like how devastating is that? Where you're, trying, you're starting to restrict your engagement with the world based on, um, a physical condition. So really common, but very treatable. Uh, it's also really common at any age uh, and with sports and exercise. One study uh, of adolescent athletes uh, average or said that there was 48.85%. That's nearly 50% of adolescent female athletes who had loss of urine at some point why are we not talking about this, right? <laughs> like, how embarrassing, how devastating sometimes. And uh, it's very treatable, which is kind of the cool thing of it all. Uh, so there's the truth. What are the consequences? So if we believe that lie that leaking is normal, um, the consequences is we start normalizing a not normal function of the body. Uh, I saw a birthday card once that said, I hope you laugh so hard you pee your pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I giggled a little bit, but then also was like mad at the same time because that's normalizing something that shouldn't happen. Um, so anyway, it's out there. Uh, and what's the call? So what do we do with that information? Uh, pelvic PT is a good place uh, to go to go, excuse me, because uh, that's really what's going to help to identify the causes. There can be lots of causes of why that leakage is happening. Um, so just know that if that's something that you are experiencing, we know it's really common, um, there's help. So if you're ready to make a change, let's do it. Okay, two myths down. Uh, myth number three, and then after this myth, we'll take a little break for any questions before we keep going. Uh, myth number three, this is for singles and dating. Having sexual desires is bad. So that's a myth. Uh, what's the truth? What does God have to say about it? Or what do we know uh, with what we know about God? Um, sex was created by God. He made it happen. Uh, and he desired it to be pleasurable. Uh, he created male and female anatomy to experience pleasure with sex. And he created us with sexual desires and the longing for intimacy. Um, so if God created it and he orchestrated our bodies to be made in that way, can't be bad. Uh, and you look at you know, Song of Songs, it's a whole book around intimacy. Um, I'm glad my husband doesn't call my neck a tower, which is one of the passages in there. Uh, but it is a beautiful book full of really good analogies and uh, appreciating in the, uh, uh, women's and men's bodies. Uh, so let me say up front, uh, having sexual desire or sexual attraction is not the same as lust. I think that's really big. And we tend to get that confused um, in the context of singleness and dating. Uh, it's okay to have sexual desires. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We're made to have those things. Um, it is wrong to lust. Uh, so lust involves a choice and an act of the will. Um, so I want to give an example, like David seeing Bathsheba on the rooftop, 
the the act of him seeing her was not a sin. Like it just, it happened. Um, But what he did in response to seeing her, he called for her, he had sex with her, and then had her husband killed in battle, Saul in 2 Samuel, that was a sin. So I think it's a really important distinction to make. Um, So lust, and lust is not just something men deal with. I think that's also really important to just start a conversation around. Because I think if the message that we hear that men are the only ones that struggle with lust, if women, if you're a woman, we all are, (laughs) and you struggle with lust, how confusing and how like shameful and dark and hidden. Um, And I think often thoughts can go to like, I what's wrong with me? Like, why am I wired to think that way? Why am I wired to struggle that way? Uh, Yeah, so really important to think about that. Uh, Sexual attraction is normal. It just is a part of life, but it's what you do with that that becomes either good or bad. So what are the consequences if we believe that lie that having sexual desires is bad? In the context of singlehood, if we believe sexual desires are bad, I think often that leads to suppression um, and avoidance and not going to think about it, not going to tend to it, not going to develop it or disciple those feelings, uh, which can lead to often pain with sex or difficulty or not enjoying sex when marriage happens or if it happens. Um, Because our bodies don't really, if the message is, you know, sex is bad before marriage and then all of a sudden one day (laughs) sex is good, our bodies don't often catch up. And if there's this suppression and this um, shoving down of sexual desire versus recognizing and tending to in healthy ways, uh, I think that can lead to some pretty destructive things within the marriage and sexual relationship. So in the unmarried years, if you're single and dating, uh, it is important to steward and disciple desires versus being ashamed of them. They're very normal. So recognize them. Their presence is not a sin. Um, But process those desires and bring those desires to God. And if those desires have shifted to sin, seeking God and his truth and his guidance for healing is going to be your best bet. Cool. Myth number three, busted, right? Cool. Uh, Let me pause. Any questions before we keep going? I know that's kind of... Teen athletes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? So the question for those of you listening later is kind of went back, going back to the the study that talked about for almost 50% of female athletes who leak with activity why why does that happen um short answer is it's complicated <laughs> it can be a lot of different things um often it's not a weakness issue um which I think is where our head, heads like to go. Like if I leak pee, it, I must have a weak pelvic floor. Nah, it's not always that. Um, it, it can be due to mechanics of how the whole pelvis and hips work. It can deal with weakness in other areas. So like glutes or core. I mean, there's a reason why we call this our core. It's the very center of our body. But basically, leaking urine is... an excessively downward force on the bladder which pushes out pee at an unintended time Uh, and that can happen because of weakness but in adolescents and athletes rarely the cause Um, it can also happen if the muscles are not coordinated at the right time so if there's a lot of downward force and then the pelvic floor muscles aren't ready to be like I got you (laughs) then out can, we can push out pee pretty easy. Um, so I find in my practice, uh, I work more with women at any age working on coordination. So can the coordination of your core be in a place where it supports that change of pressure? Um, so in the study, they looked at what 
what sports or activities were more likely to cause leakage. Trampoline uh, was one of them. Jump rope was another one. Uh, or anything with quick or sudden movements. Um, so uh, those things can cause just that, that unintended loss of urine. And often it's a pressure issue. So a lot of big downward force that causes it to happen. So yeah, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. You're a cheerleader, so lots of jumping. It's a lot of whoosh, right? We've all felt that. Like if you've jumped on a trampoline, it's that whoosh, uh, that downward force. So if those muscles, both tummy and pelvic floor, aren't ready to help, then you can push out pee. Good question. Any other questions? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah a great question so jennifer asked um what how do you see a pelvic therapist like do you have to go to a doctor in order to have that happen or can you just go see him uh, most insurances do allow for direct access so we're we bill the same as normal pt so you can always call your insurance and figure out your pt benefits um but most insurances in the state of oregon allow you to come without a referral which is pretty neat. Um, and then we kind of get to be the gatekeepers and involve different professionals as we need. Um, and yeah, I uh, definitely have lots of suggestions of who to who to go to. Um, I mean, you're welcome to see me. Um, I would love that. Uh, if that's weird, I have coworkers at uh, the, <laughs> the uh, um, clinic that I work in. I work at the Salem Pelvic Wellness Center just to plant a seed of what where I work. Uh, but there's pelvic therapists at Therapeutic Associates, at uh, the Salem Hospital, at PT Northwest. So any of those places would definitely be able to help to direct you if that's something that you were interested in. So good question. Okay. I also set, I forgot to mention, out a basket with some paper and a pencil. So if the question you have, you don't want to say it, um, you can write it down. <clears throat> so anyway, options. Yep. Probably at the end, just to give people time for people to write something. Good question. Okay, cool. All right, on with the myth busting. So myth number four, this one's for married, those of us who find ourselves in marriage relationships. Women don't really want to have sex. Uh, it's a common, common myth. Um, we have often been told, uh, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, that men have insatiable sexual desires, that they have, uh, you know, Every Man's Battle was a book that's written about how every man struggles with lust. Um, so if you grew up in the church or around those teachings, sometimes we hold that with us. I remember even in middle school, I heard that men think about sex every seven minutes. I don't know how they calculated that or who developed that, but it's a common saying. And so we're told that a lot. Um, and so often women um, are kind of lost in that. Uh, and also told, you know, women don't really like sex or may not be interested in sex or sex doesn't feel good, or that those types of things. Uh, in reality, so the truth um, is the women's and men's libidos are actually quite similar. Uh, in a survey in 2004, a quarter of women wanted sex more than their partners, a quarter of men wanted sex more than their partners, and 50% said it was about equal. So that's really pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, another survey, the average duration of a sexual encounter in heterosexual couples is 14 to 17 minutes. The average time for women to achieve orgasm, 20 minutes. Interesting, right? Like, there's something there. <laughs> uh, so sex uh, is a very biological, physical thing. Um, for humans, we... It's also very emotional. It's very spiritual. It's the way to be um, 
the most intimate with someone, um, but it takes practice. It takes patience uh, and open communication with our partners uh, to develop uh, sexual health and sexual encounters. Uh, fun fact, God created us with sex organs and he created women with a clitoris. Uh, it's only function, by the way, sexual pleasure. Fascinating. Uh, men, on the other hand, their sexual organs, their penis, it's directly tied to procreation. So it's a dual function organ. I mean, it's both with orgasm, but their orgasm is tied directly to procreation. Women, on the other hand, we don't need um, the clitoris to procreate. So it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Like God put that there for us to experience pleasure. So pretty, pretty cool. So we better believe that women do want to have sex and women should have sex in the context of marriage. Um, so yeah, important. Uh, another fact, women do take more time to warm up, quotation marks, than men. Um, and learning that and talking with your partner or spouse about that is really important. So what are the consequences if we believe the lie that women don't want to have sex? Uh, we tend to then think that the experience of the woman isn't as important as the experience of the man. Uh, and it kind of really goes back to a lot of patriarchal uh, teachings, a lot of patriarchal thoughts, um, but also puts women often below, uh, which is not what God intended. Uh, also, another consequence could be that women become an object for the man to satisfy his needs or desires, which can also be really damaging and lead to dissatisfaction with sex. Uh, so what's the call? What do, we, what do we take away from this? Um, women want and deserve good sex. That's really important. Uh, what are some keys to good sex? Uh, first thing, consent, 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 consent. Both partners need to consent. Um, that is definitely a key to good sex. Uh, another key be having sex when aroused. Um, in the book, which I mentioned earlier, the great sex rescue, um, women who were not aroused during sex and knew they would not become aroused, typically felt disappointed, sexually frustrated, ashamed, and used. So really fascinating stuff. Arousal is really important. Another important thing to having good sex, uh, developing skills of sensuality without the pressure of vaginal penetration. That's huge. Um, and uh, there's an article, I don't have it, so log this away, write it down or whatever, um, if you feel like you would benefit from developing sensuality. Uh, it's called Sensate Focus, and oh, basically what it is, it's the practice of focused touching, um, and it borrows principles from mindfulness and encourages you to let go of judgment and focus on experience and sensation. So sensuality is just sensation. What do I feel? Um, but without judgment, without uh, thinking uh, negatively about what you feel or uh, letting your mind wander to other things. It's really a, a way to develop um, how to be in your body and experience what your body is feeling because um, often that can lead to really good sex. Sensate focus. It's an article from the 90s. If you Google it, it's going to pop right up. But yeah, it's yeah, really. Uh, there's like four different exercises. Uh, the first one, uh, there's one partner is the toucher and the other one's the receiver. And so if you are receiving, and you, you have to stay away from breasts and uh, genitals. So if you're receiving, you're just feeling what you feel. Um, and paying attention to areas that feel good. Um, and then you switch places. And then the second one is now you can, like, you can go to genitals. You can touch those areas too, um, but no penetration. And again, what does it feel like? You're kind of, you're in your body. You're experiencing what your body is saying um, without judgment. And then I think maybe it's only three exercises. Don't quote me on that. Um, and the third one can involve vaginal penetration, so... 
anyway, it's just a, it's a way to take some of the pressure off. We all get in routines, right? And habits in sexual relationships where this is what's worked in the past and these are the steps and this is what we do. Um, but that article can be really helpful at um, teaching our bodies how to experience so, and to feel. And like, what what do I feel? What feels good to me? And it's kind of, it breaks the barrier where you can just have open conversations with your spouse um, and they can learn the areas that feel good to you. Yeah, good question. It's a really good article. Um, a lot of good things to learn. Sweet. All right, moving on. Myth five, also for married people. Uh, it's normal for sex to be painful. I've kind of already chatted about this a little bit on stage. Um, nope, not normal. Uh, it's very common. Uh, there's a new study that found 48% of women will report pain with sex at some point in their life, but it's not normal. Uh, and like I said on stage, women who grew up in the evangelical church are twice as likely to have pain with sex. We should be paying attention to that. We should be having conversations about uh, about this um, and give strategies and how to help rehabilitate that. Uh, another truth, women who have sex out of obligation to their husbands are more likely to have pain with sex. Um, so that's also in the Great Sex Rescue book. Um, what are the consequences if we believe the lie? So if we believe that sex is, is painful, it's normal for sex to be painful, um, the consequences, women often suffer for several years without seeking treatment or help. Um, like I said earlier, it's really common that people that come to see me have been dealing with this for several years. Um, and that, that has significant implications in the context of marriage relationships, frustration, uh, feelings of inadequacy, um, and that the longer that that goes on, the more negative the experiences are with that area of our body. And it produces this self-fulfilling cycle of if, if you expect pain, what do our bodies do in pain, right? Can anyone show me what they like to do? Yeah. Whew. <laughs> exactly. You tense up, uh, which creates more of a problem and then more negative experiences, more trauma, more shame, more guilt. Um, so yeah, really common to have that circular patterning. Um, another interesting thing uh, in this position, right? Uh, when you tighten your knees together, your pelvic floor also tightens. I mean, what's the universal sign for keeping pee in? <laughs> the reason why we do it, it recruits more pelvic floor muscles. So uh, there's a link there. Where do we also go in times of anxiety? Right? Um, so all of those things are linked to pelvic floor uh, potentially dysfunction or pelvic floor tightness, which can just shut those doors. Nothing's coming in. Oh, yeah, my body position. Good, thank you. <laughs> it's hard to be physical and also know that this is being recorded. So uh, the po good point was, can, we de can I describe what we were just demonstrating, which is kind of like the fetal position. So your shoulders uh, often come up and forward, knees come together, hips come together, and then you're kind of crouched in that fetal position really common position of pain or comfort, you know, making yourself small. Um, so yeah, great point. Uh, so what's the call? What do we do with this information? Um, there can be many causes. There can be many causes for pain with sex. Uh, the short answer would be if that is part of your story right now, talk to your provider and or see a public therapist. <laughs> Shameless plug again. Um, uh, but I do want to talk about some causes because that can be helpful in your own processing if that's where you find yourself. Uh, often it's an involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles. So it's the those muscles that we practiced at the beginning. They're in this shrugged, tucked up position and they close those openings. Uh, that can also, if those muscles are really tight, it can lead to inability to use tampons. Nothing can enter inside. Uh, 
painful, painful, painful uh, annual exams, which are also important for health. Um, but if those pelvic floor muscles are saying, nope, uh, nothing's coming in, uh, that can lead to the inability to for exams. Uh, so that's an involuntary contraction. Uh, I can't tell you how many times a woman who has that problem has come to me and said, I was just told to drink a glass of wine and take a bath. I'm like, that's not going to help you. <laughs> it's bad advice. It's not anything that uh, they're doing on purpose. Um, it's something that is involuntary and can be caused from lots of different things. It can be caused by from trauma, history of trauma. Um, it can be caused for no reason at all. Uh, some uh, everyone's kind of on this spectrum global body wise of either being able to move a lot and hypermobile uh, where your joints move a lot or really stiff and tight we're all kind of on that spectrum and um, and another kind of exercise to demonstrate this everyone bring up your shoulders close your jaw and then bring your attention what's your pelvic floor doing it all, it follows, right? Oh, well, you need some help. No, I'm just joking. I'm so joking. <laughs> I'm so joking. That's okay. That's okay. But often in that posture with kind of that clenched um, or anxiety or any of those things, our pelvic floor often follows. So there's some links there to what's our body position? Like, what do you do for work? Um, all of those things can lead to that pelvic floor wanting to tend to hold more tension. Um, our thoughts and our beliefs about our body can also lead to that tension. Going back to, you know, how how did you grow up? What was your, your family's talk discussions about modesty about menstruation about like did someone tell you how a pad works or how to use a tampon like did were those open conversations or was there shame and like hiddenness around that um all of those things can feed into that another cause of pelvic or pain with sex having a baby uh, either having a birth injury um having a baby's hard work way to go <laughs> Uh, but it can lead to pelvic pain. Uh, can lead uh, if there's any tearing or scarring that can cause uh, pelvic pain. Uh, hormonal changes that uh, happen after delivering a baby are very similar to those that happen after menopause. Our estrogen levels tank, and guess what areas really where estrogen is really important? That vaginal tissue. Um, estrogen gives that vaginal tissue the, the plumpiness and the lubrication that it needs to stretch and to open. Uh, another thing that can cause pain with sex, a skin sensitivity. So an infection, inflammation, trauma to that area. That can also cause pain with sex. Uh, Postmenopausal. So estrogen loss is a thing. Um, any type of cancer treatments, so radiation, chemotherapy, those can cause, or even medications in general. Uh, there's been links to several medications in the development of pelvic pain. So there's lots of reasons to why that could happen. All right, moving last, last myth. This one's fairly short. Um, this is for the older married folks. Sex is for the young. <laughs> that is a myth. <laughs> uh, sex can happen at any age, and it's okay for it to happen at any age. Uh, certainly, things get a little bit more complicated. Sometimes bodies don't feel as good as they used to, you know, get sometimes joint pains in other places that make certain positions harder. Um, hormone, hormonal changes are also a thing. Uh, libidos typically decrease as we age, um, but not, not always. But estrogen levels tank, and that plays a role, like I said, in that vaginal tissue. For men, prostates continue to grow typically, which can lead to issues of erectile dysfunction. Um, some, sometimes men have surgeries that also affect how their anatomy is working. Uh, so often, you know, if marriage, uh, later in marriage or older married folks, if they're experiencing um, less or frequent sex, it often involves both partners. Um, but that can cause dissatisfaction in relationships or, uh, you know, the longer there's been this sexless period, 
There can be just the introduction of avoidance of talking to your partner about these things. And then things get awkward real quick <laughs> sometimes. So there can be some awkwardness of bringing it up if it hasn't happened in a while. We tend to settle uh, the longer that uh, sex hasn't been part of a relationship. So what's the call? Healthy conversations with your partner is always a good place to start. Uh, figuring out what your bodies are capable of doing, what your goals are. Um, if neither partner wants sex, that's okay. That's totally okay. But if uh, partners do want sex and there's a physical reason why that's not happening, know that there's treatments and help for that. Uh, so seek medical treatment if you need. Um, and then continue to seek intimacy. So if sex is off the table or it's not a desire for either partner, um, figuring out ways to continue to be intimate. Uh, maybe it's just cuddling or maybe it's lying with each other naked and being okay with that. That's okay too. But intimacy is really important. So those are all my myths. We made it. Yeah. It's kind of a lot of content, right? It's a, it's a big topic. You know, it's hard, hard to boil that down into an hour or so of chatting. Uh, so lots of space for questions. We got about 10 minutes. Um, so any questions that come right off the bat? Maybe can I give this to you? Okay. So pain with sex, if you are having estrogen levels drop or things like that, is that something you can actually help with therapy? When, I mean, I'm not there yet, but I'm sure it's coming soon. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, so they do make hormone estrogen creams, topical creams that go right to that area. And that's often something that we help our women um, get. Uh, a lot of uh, postpartum women, we also get them going on that um, if they're having any issues there as well because estrogen uh, levels drop at that point too. Uh, but the prescription needs to come from a medical provider, but we definitely help with all of those things and making sure that that happens. There's also non-hormonal ways to lubricate that area. Uh, vitamin E is really helpful. Um, so there's suppositories you can buy on Amazon uh, that you can stick up the vagina uh, and that will help to lubricate and keep that area flexible um, there's also other other things other um, over-the-counter uh, lotions and creams that you can buy to help things be more lubricated but to see the most change and the quickest change is, is typically estrogen um, an estrogen cream uh, but not everyone's appropriate for it there are very 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 minimal risks with it which is pretty cool it doesn't go to your bloodstream like an oral estrogen would um, so typically you're not getting a lot of the negative side effects like headaches migraines hot flashes those types of things weight gain um, and it, so very limited goes to the bloodstream but there's still some people like if they've had a history of estrogen related cancer that maybe not be appropriate so great question So I have two young girls, um, and I grew up evangelical and have a lot of issues surrounding this particular topic, But, um, and I'll deal with those, but <laughs> how do I instill positive, loving-type conversations with my girls so that I can make sure that they don't have, you know, 20, 25 years of baggage that they're carrying with them as they get older and they're young still so I have a little bit of time but probably not as much as I would like that is a great 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 question and I, th I my first response would be the fact that you are aware of it is an excellent place to start um, and that you can speak from your experience um, and so my invitation then would be for you to speak from your experience with your daughters um, in age-appropriate ways. And I often think of it kind of like each conversation that we have around, if it is around sex or if it's around body changes or whatever, um, each conversation is kind of a drip in a bucket. Um, so it's not this like 
overwhelmingly amount of information all at once um, because then things kind of fall in place and it's less overwhelming um, if conversations have just taken place at age appropriate times kind of what I can think to immediately in my own life is I have a son um, and he saw me using the toilet on my period and saw blood in the toilet and so then his response his he looked at me and was like what, mommy, you have, you have an owie? And I was like, no, no, no. So that, that that's a perfect time to like engage with this topic. And so I said, no, like, why is he reacting though? Like at three years old, he just wants to know that his mom is safe. So my response to him was, oh, mama's okay. Mama's not hurt. I'm okay. And this happens to me once a month and I'm okay, you know? And then he was fine, didn't ask any more questions. Um, so just stuff like that of when there becomes this opportunity to share from your experience and to share openly around bodies and and things and modesty and all of that, that it's just a drip, a drip in a bucket so that they get truths that are just sprinkled for for as long as you have them in your house. Okay, so this question's like in three parts, I guess. So, so is it the act of delivering a child that affects your pelvic floor, or is it the act of growing a child that affects it? Okay, and then um, does either way in which a child is brought into the world does that do different things to? Okay, and then the third one is the the third one would be then what do you recommend for people if they can't get an appointment right away? Are there things that you could do like if you have like if you've had babies and now you're like, I want an appointment, but it's, I'm going to wait and all that. I wish I could say everyone's delivery is the same and everyone's recovery is the same. And so I can say, this is exactly what you do. And I can't, and I'm sorry. Um, but there are lots of things that you can do and it depends how far from delivery you are. Um, but pregnancy think about what happens to your body during pregnancy belly grows this way so it affects how your core muscles are working your tummy muscles uh, they get stretched out having a kid vaginally is the biggest stretch your pelvic floor will ever receive <laughs> so uh, if you have a normal vaginal delivery uh, that's fairly uncomplicated your recovery is twofold you're recovering from the pelvic floor but also as belly rebounds a c-section your pelvic floor doesn't get that stretch but you're cutting through seven layers of tissue which is a lot Uh, and in that procedure they take this big metal spoon and push down on your bladder (laughs) so they can pull the kid out and it's a beautiful invention of medical modern medical medicine but it is traumatic um so it it depends. Uh, often where I start with people is, can you talk to all of those muscles? Can your brain talk to those muscles? Can you activate them like we practiced at the start? Do you know where a Kegel is? Um, fun fact, the only way to tell if you're doing a Kegel is internally. Um, you can't, there's some signs that you can see externally, but the, really the only way to know how the pelvic floor is working is with an internal assessment. Uh, So that's something that I do regularly as part of my practice because I can then educate, yes, that is a good Kegel. I'm like, nope, you're doing the wrong thing. (laughs) But you can't tell unless you're looking from the outside and also paying attention to what's going on at the inside. So my first step is always, okay, can you contract your core like you should? Can you contract your pelvic floor as you should? Is there range of motion there? Can it rest? Um, or how are you breathing? Uh, the abdomen is this, it's like a balloon, uh, or soda can. I like the soda can analogy a little bit better. So the top of your core is your diaphragm, bottoms, your pelvic floor around the middle is your core muscle. And they need to work together for ultimate and long-term recovery. So that's really where I start. Can we just get all of those three muscle groups working together? So we do a lot of breathing. I do a lot of that diaphragmatic breathing. If you, thinking back to when we tried that, if you're like, I cannot (laughs) breathe without lifting here, that could be worth some practice. Teaching your diaphragm how to engage is really important. Because if you think about 
uh, a balloon and what happens if you were to push the top of the balloon the bottom would bulge and that's the bottom was that pelvic floor so if the diaphragm's not working your pelvic floor is not getting the signals to uh, rest so I can't answer your question specifically but start waking up those muscles thinking about what are they doing um breathe 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 yeah so that sort of give you a, a, sets you off on the right path cool and then come see me sometime or someone else yes toss the mic i have a comment and then a question um like at 50 years old when i had my birthday party people gave me you know those always pads and that's when I found out that people were always having that problem. Then I started having that problem. And my gynecologist got me a device that I never wanted my children to find because it looked like something else. But I would insert it, and then it had a little monitor, kind of like a breath thing. And it would show you how much pressure, and you had to hold it certain amounts of time. And now I don't have that problem. But my question is, can you show the books for kids? the guy stuff the body book for boys and then this one is the care and keeping of you which is for girls and that's an american girl one um i read this one with my daughter which was fabulous and start earlier than you think i started with her at eight reading this talking about periods gave her a mirror showed her all her holes um she sat there with it looking at herself she, <laughs> she touched everything and she's like opening and closing. Ha ha, look, it looks like a funny mouth. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, this was not a conversation I had with my mom. Um, then showed her what a tampon was, what a pad was, where you would put them, when you would use them, why you would use them. She rode this giant pad like a stick horse around the living my bedroom and my husband was so embarrassed. Um, so I, this one, the Care and Keeping of You for Girls is really good. I haven't done the, the guy one because I didn't know there was one. Um, the guy stuff, the body book for boys, and the Care and Keeping of You. And there's actually, for the girls, the Care and Keeping of You, there's multiple books. This one is the first one. There's a second one. And there's a, a feelings book, too, which is really good for girls to understand how they're feeling. Sorry I'm taking over your presentation here. But... Um, and teach your girls how to use stuff. My daughter, yes. And I didn't. Te I did teach my daughter how to use a tampon when she was little, but it was not. To, then she's you know thirteen. It's been several years since we talked about that. She's getting ready to go to Young Life Camp where she's going to be swimming. She comes to me that morning. They're leaving for camp. She's like, I started my period. I'm like, okay. Well, we're off to Fred Meyer to buy tampons, and I showed her how to use them in the parking lot. But so do it before. Do it before. <laughs> to the point about how to talk to our kids about this stuff, your point about the drip in the bucket, one of the things that was told me a long time ago that was super helpful for me, because I am a way over informer. I just, I'll tell you all the things. Um, to answer their questions and stop and see if you, what you said creates a new question, great. But if it doesn't, then that's all they needed to know that day. Because sometimes we think, well, they asked that question, so now I need to tell them all the things, and it's just, just answer. The, and to answer the question with as much as possible, not allowing it yourself to be mortified by their question. Like modeling that I am very comfortable with your question and I will answer your question with anatomically correct terms, but I'm going to stop when I've answered your question and then wait and see if that sparked more questions for you or not. Um, so that was a helpful grid for me. Uh, so I did not have these conversations with my parents. They pulled me out of sex ed when I, you know, when you do it in fourth grade to do it at home. And I'm like, well, we didn't really do much and it's uncomfortable. That's just not the kind of relationship that we have. So using those anatomically correct words with my kids, I think has opened up our conversations to be really 
open and honest. And our dinner table creates some very interesting conversations because we've created this atmosphere of, of openness where my son was like, so when you have a baby, do you poop it out? You know, so then my husband took dry erase marker and drew legs and three holes on our window in our kitchen and labeled them all so he could see what was going on. That stayed there for a couple weeks on our kitchen window. But they're not afraid to ask us questions uh, and they're not afraid to talk to us about stuff. So use those words. And even though it makes me still a little uncomfortable, I don't show them and they don't feel uncomfortable because why would they? Cool. Uh, any questions in the box there since you're sitting close to it? Cool. Yeah, you're also comfortable. Uh, so I uh, want to wrap up. Thanks for coming. Thanks for engaging. If you have more questions, find me. I'm happy to answer. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Cool. Yeah.